0: Welcome to He Sang, She Sang from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And
1: I'm Jeff Spurgeon, in for Mike's show. But today we're talking about Vertaire by Jules Massenet.
0: Joining us in the studio is James Cuslin, a writer and lecturer on opera and other topics related to the arts. Welcome, James, and thank you so much for being here.
2: I'm delighted to be here, Marin. Thank you for having me.
0: Jeff, what would you say Verterre is really about?
1: Well, I don't know about what, what it's really about, but if you had to sum the opera up in a sentence, this is a man who's fallen in love with a woman he can't have, and so he kills himself. The end.
0: <laughs> and why can't he have her?
1: Well, because she's betrothed to another man, and maybe she loves him, and maybe she doesn't. She probably does a little bit, but it's simply put, as it can be.
2: I think because the whole fabric of Verter is composed of so many threads, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say it's just about one thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's one reason why it's such a fascinating Mm -hmm. experience in the theater is that you can spend, after you're exposed to a good performance, many days just trying to understand what it was that happened to you. I think there are many kinds of loves... ...happening on stage. Certainly, self-love is a major theme.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would never have thought of that, but of course, that's absolutely right.
2: It is Verter's love for his own emotional life. He has no distance from it whatsoever. And in a sense, although he is frequently thought of as being a romantic hero... When you ask what it is that heroes do, at least in opera, they slay dragons. Werther can't even master himself. (laughs) He actually leaves a swath of destruction behind him.
0: That makes me want to talk a bit about The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe. This novella was an absolute sensation when it was published in...
2: 1774.
0: And it ushered in the change from rationalism to a kind of romanticism. It was sort of a backlash, which is maybe the reason why in the novella and then, of course, in the opera, Werther is quite so immersed in his own world of feeling. Because now this is not a world about logic and rational thought, but it's about the depth of human emotion.
2: It is about the depth of human emotion. Goethe, I think in his novella was taking to its logical conclusion what happens when someone has not mastered the emotions that are rampaging through his being. And in fact, he said later in his life that young people would be absolutely intolerable were it not for the fact that one had been at one time a young person (laughs) oneself. And we have to bear in mind that at least looking at the operatic score... Charlotte is 20, Werther is 23, and Albert is 25. What, though,
1: was Goethe up to? Because we do think of the novella as being a milestone in romanticism and in the understanding and appreciation, if not worship occasionally, of emotion. Was Werther trying to say, ''Careful of this romanticism thing because this was what he was about,'' Or was he just showing what can happen through it?
2: Well, I, I'm not a Goethe expert, but it seems to me that there is not only a cautionary element in the novella, as as there is also in, in the opera, perhaps to a lesser degree, because in the opera, Werther's love for Charlotte is clearly reciprocated, and it's very ambiguous in the novella. But also, I think Goethe was exploring the nature of euphoria. In the novella, certainly not in the opera, Charlotte remonstrates with Werther. She tells him to be a man. She considers that his submission to his passion to be actually a sign of weakness and not anything that is admirable. And considering how long a life Goethe lived... I have a sense that he was rather in sympathy with that sentiment of Charlotte's. And yet, the novella was so influential.
1: Young men killed themselves, as Werther does in the novella and in the opera. Young men (laughs) collected their tears in glass vials to show that they were able to display emotion.
0: Yeah, they even dressed like Werther. They wore yellow waistcoats and leather breeches.
1: It made me think of the hipster movement in Brooklyn. It's, <laughs> it, this was a this was a social phenomenon that that Goethe triggered through the character of Werther. So it had to have enormous resonance in the public sphere at that time, at least the public sphere of literate people.
2: Well, trigger is a very apropos word, I think, <laughs> <laughs> but in a sense. I think people who are troubled, disturbed, will fasten on any justification for extreme acts. And it just so happened that Werther stumbled upon Charlotte. In a way, you can say about Werther is that he's already so unhappy before he meets Charlotte that it's quite possible he was looking for any excuse to end his life in the novella. Certainly, the possibility of suicide is runs through the entire book.
1: Makes you really want to go see the opera, doesn't it? You've just presented a, <laughs> a lovely picture. Well, it's interesting because it's a, it's a powerful opera and a very successful opera. Right. But, but we've got a guy here who's in real trouble, and he's the center of the whole piece of business.
0: He is, and obviously had this deep resonance culturally The opera premiered almost 100 years after this novella was written at the Vienna Court Opera in 1892. But there's something still so moving about just how emotionally rich and dramatic in complex ways, not melodramatic ways, but there's a real complexity to the drama in Massenet's music.
2: I think one of the elements of Massenet's Verter for which we must be grateful, is that he is sincere. What happened in Europe with the devastations of the First World War was that irony, distance, began to inform most of the arts. I have to say that Irony is like a spice, a very powerful spice. A little bit of it, when applied to human experience, can make it actually palatable. But if you slather it on, then your very life becomes indigestible. And I was fortunate enough to be at the dress rehearsal of Werther, and the audience was rapt. Because they were told by the music that it is absolutely all right to feel their emotions, to not have to edit them, to let them take them wherever the emotions would take them while they were in a safe space, so which you're is saying the that, theater.
1: So you're saying that Verterre is a way to gain relief from the overspice of irony in our present moment.
2: Yes, I would say so. I would say that A truly hideous irony is that the Christmas gift that Werther gives himself is his own death (laughs) because he dies happy. He's the only person of the principles who is at peace at the end. It's true. He's left a great deal of, of wreckage behind him, but he got what he wanted. Charlotte has said, yes, I do love you.
1: So he gets satisfaction at the end, Uh, and I am struck again, as, as we have gone through this series of podcasts at the incredible ways that women are abused in opera. It's just, (laughs) it seems like the first purpose. Yes. And at the end of this opera, there's Charlotte. She's married to a guy. Yes, It's a marriage that is, in some ways, you could idealize and say, this is what a marriage is all about. It's about two people coming together, raising a family, and moving the society forward. And are they happy? That doesn't really matter. That's not what marriage is about. But at the end, she's got this dead guy sitting there who she's finally confessed to loving him and she's the center of all this trouble that's occurred poor thing she's another woman not killed but slain in other ways at the end of this opera it's really awful you're not making this art form happier for me mirren through this entire
0: (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) don't forget though that this opera like so many others is based on stories that existed outside of the world of opera. So we're obviously pulling at something that's even deeper in the culture than, than just in the music.
1: Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think that, that James, you know, you sent us before you came today, you sent us a couple of lectures that you did on on this opera. And I was absolutely struck by one of the things that you said. And I'm going to quote from this lecture. Um, and you can sue me for copyright violence, later, <laughs> but it's, it's so terrific. Opera is a restorative medium because it allows us, from a vantage point of distance and wisdom, to relive a wounding experience in the healing medium of aesthetic beauty. And I think that is such a great way to describe why we go to experience art and why we find that odd mix of pleasure and pain in great art. In fact, I'm going to read it again. Please Opera do. is a restorative medium because it allows us from a vantage point of distance and wisdom to relive a wounding experience in the healing medium of aesthetic beauty. That help also helps me to understand why we call Verterre a romantic hero. Because just as you said, he's not a hero at all. But there's something about him that resonates with our own existential pain, our own struggles to find meaning in the world, And some sympathy for this guy who says, I can't do it, I've just got to check out.
2: Yes, it's the glory of his music that valorizes this character. Something I want to say about the nature of how women are frequently abused in, in opera. And when I was sitting at the rehearsal, there was a moment that, in my younger days, didn't have the same... Impact on me, but it's in the first act. Charlotte is speaking of how deeply she and her siblings and her father miss their recently deceased mother. And she says, The young ones still will say to me, Sister, why did the men in black come to take mother away? Verter shows his true colors at that moment. He doesn't engage with what Charlotte has said. He just says, extase rêve, bonheur, you know. He's, he, what's, a,
0: what's a translation of, of that? Uh,
2: ecstasy, a dream, happiness. All he sees in Charlotte is this maternal force that will maybe nurse him back to health. And that's when I thought you in trouble, girl. You gotta get out of here. <laughs>
1: she's trapped and she's trapped by her own nature and and by the fact that she is the older oldest daughter she's the big sister so she becomes the mother when her own mother dies she is a wonderfully admirable dutiful woman yes. and i think that we have sympathy with those women too because we feel that they are cheated out of passion in a way
2: well she actually was first victimized not by werther but by her her very own mother who, on her deathbed, extracted from Charlotte the promise, they refer to it as an oath, that Charlotte would marry Albert, the local nice guy.
0: Right, and it's a duty that she takes very seriously. Why don't we go up to the Metropolitan Opera to speak with Isabel Leonard, the phenomenal mezzo-soprano who's singing the role of Charlotte, and let's get her take on the character's dilemmas and choices. Charlotte is a cool, noble, very dignified character, and kind of unflappable throughout the opera. She seems that way sometimes, yeah. You seem to suggest that maybe there's a different sort of undercurrent for her. Yeah, I think that uh, Charlotte has a lot going on inside of her mind and her heart. Do you find it simple to bring the same kind of unshakable quality to all of the complexities of
3: life and love and a career in opera?
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> not really. There's a strange connection. I think, I think people can identify with a sense of duty and responsibility and, and then a sense of what they might want or what they might need. I, I mean, I only hope for everybody that all of those things are closer to, uh, come close to meeting in the middle rather than being so separate
0: Right now, that fundamental loss of her mother happens right at the the very beginning, even really before any of the action of the opera takes place. Mm-hmm. I think that you were probably about the same age as Charlotte is in this opera when you lost your father, very sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, does that factor in to this character for you at all, and into the way that you think about her?
3: You know, it's it's that's actually a really interesting question. Um, I mean, where I was in my life when my father passed away, it was in some ways very different, I think, to where Charlotte might have been, in the sense that just just looking at it, uh, surely in, in its time period, she probably already had many discussions with Albert and and she knew that this was somebody that her mother liked and wanted her to marry and she was about to take those next steps to move forward where of course at the time when my dad passed away that's not where I was at all. Right, you were in um, college at the I was time. in college, I mean we were all a complete mess in college so <laughs> That's for fun, sure so hard, yeah. <laughs> um, Now of course I have a son who's six, you know who's almost seven What's his name? His name is Teo and he um You know, when I think about the responsibilities that I have now, I think, of course, I'd love my father to be there and witness it. And even Charlotte says at some point, you know, Mama, I wish you were here just for a moment to see what was going on. And I think at that moment, it's it's a sort of a dual thought that she has in the story itself, because she probably somewhere in the back of her mind feels what's happening with Vertaire. And I bet she's she might not be able to verbalize in that very second, you know, Maman, I wish you were here so that I could ask you to please let me out of my, my vow or my duty to marry Albert because there's something going on here that I'm not quite sure of with right. tear. You know, if it had clicked in the other direction three days before her mother had died, you know, <laughs> maybe things would have been different, you know, but it was just the chain of events, and for somebody who is so stoically uh, dutiful, it's heartbreaking it's it just is so it's so tragic for both of them, yeah, know.
0: and Stoic really is I think the right the right word for mm-hmm. her, particularly in the epistolary novel that the book is based on by Goethe there's tons of ambiguity mm-hmm. about how Charlotte feels mm-hmm. the reader doesn't end up with a sense of whether she is in love with Verter. I, I think you know that she's not in love with Albert. Right. Do you think that that's ambiguous in this opera?
3: I don't think it's ambiguous in the opera, personally. I think that to make it a really humane and interesting and deep and complicated and confusing story, as I think it should be, they're like magnets that are drawn to each other. They cannot be within the same range, you know, Mm -hmm. in space and not come together. Right. Right. And that chemistry thing. There's just something about that, something that they have. And she does not have it with Albert. I don't think she dislikes Albert at all. I think she probably does love him in her own way. Um, like you said, she's not in love with him, though. It's like time stops for a second. You know, the camera angle, if it were a movie, you know, the camera angle zooms in on you, zooms out, and zooms back in. Like, this sort of feeling, like the world goes, whoa, whoa, (laughs) And uh, she has that every time she sees Veriter. And I think there are moments where it drives her crazy, and there are other moments where she knows full well she is losing her footing. And she's losing her strength to... To stay away <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there's something so kind of wonderful about it because if people say they don't know what that feels like or if they say well I would never feel that way about somebody else they're lying <laughs> <laughs> you know we're humans we feel this way and I think that sometimes we make decisions in life that are based on our responsibilities and based on the people we care about and the, and the people we need to care for and And yeah, sometimes we meet other people in life and they become something else for us. And we can't necessarily fully flesh out the nature of that relationship because of everything we have put into place prior. I think there's so many versions of this story that people can connect to if they just think about their past. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Or their present. (laughs) Um, Where they can really come and see, you know, they can see this opera and they can get... In some ways, they can get whatever they need, in a cathartic sense, from the piece.
0: And this story was sort of a sensation from the moment Mm -hmm. that it was published, Mm -hmm. you know, 100 years before the opera. It stands the test of time Mm -hmm. as the basis of a story. We all know what passionate, unrequited love feels like to some extent. I think we all know what it feels like to... To wonder if somebody else loves us, mm-hmm. but also to have the sense that whatever this is that we want, whoever this person is that we so desperately want, is just not available to us for one reason or sure, another.
3: Sure, sure. And it, there could be a variety of reasons. You know, we have, we know what it all is. You know, we know what that means. Something I really like about the way we have, have put together this production and Richard Ayer's uh, vision is that. he he happened to stage the prologue, which is something that he likes to do. Um, Everybody has their opinion on that, which is fine. But one moment that I do like at the very, very tail end of the prologue, or the overture, if you will, um, I have a moment with Maurizio, who plays my father, and all the children have come, we've all come back on, and it's now springtime, or, or several months have passed since the mother has passed away. And the children are putting flowers on her grave, and my sister Sophie rushes over to me and gives me a hug because everybody's still emotionally very raw mm-hmm. from the situation, and I support her and I and I pick up everybody. You know, I sort of am supporting everyone. And as as they all turn around and head out, I'm allowed to have a moment where I turn to the Bayi to my father, basically in search of emotional support from him. And the father he's not in a position to give this emotional support. Yep. It's such a small moment in the very beginning, and even the scrim is down, so I don't even know how clear it is to the audience. It's clear, yeah. That's great, because it's something that, for me, you know, every time you do a production, there are little things that mean more and less to you, depending on what's going on, and the more I do this version, the more I enjoy that moment, because it informs me to Charlotte's, you know, her, her devout responsibility, you know, he walks away, she turns around, she follows him out, and as, and I know pe- personally, me, I sort of make this conscious decision like before I leave the stage where I go, right, I cannot crack. Right. I am not allowed. Yeah. And so it's really interesting then to go from that place, especially for the first act. It doesn't get sticky until <laughs> they, come, <laughs> they come home after the ball, you know, and then it's really sticky once she's married. But all of that feeling of, I cannot crack, I cannot crack, I cannot crack until of course the second act where a dam is breached and right she still though tries to keep it together and and, and you know but there are definite leaks in the in the dam <laughs> <laughs> lots of leaks that uh, is for sure yeah. mm-hmm.
0: uh going back for a moment we we can assume that most people have the experience of unrequited love i don't know if everyone has the experience of love at first sight you don't have to tell me particulars <laughs> but but have you had a moment in your life that helps you to believe in what happens between charlotte and Berthe in yeah. that first m- yeah yeah i have
3: i definitely have no i absolutely and i remember i still remember the moment of it i mean that's that person's not in my life uh but i certainly remember that moment of locking eyes and where the world just kind of stopped spinning for a second yeah you know and then and they were in my life for quite some time and you know you had Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. There are people. And then you meet people along the way where you have this sort of intrinsic connection to somebody and you don't know why. Yeah, one of the amazing things
0: that an opera does is it cherry picks all mm-hmm. of the most intense moments mm-hmm. of a life and compresses that into a couple of hours so you don't have any of the boring stuff you just you have the, you have the stuff <laughs> yeah, that's worth exactly. getting up for exactly. sometimes killing yourself for in, in the case of verter and yeah, many other operas yeah. unfortunately yeah exactly in marrying albert and in falling in love with verter charlotte is shown two versions of a life mm-hmm. she's shown a life of duty married to a man who maybe she does respect and maybe even loves in a way but it's it's not a passionate marriage. And then she has a vision of life with Berter, which Mm -hmm. is as we've said, fiery and passionate. Um, Do you think it's clear which of these two lives actually suits her better? That's a really good question.
3: I think, you know, Isabel, me, who thinks about this as a as a modern female, <laughs> right, I go back and forth, even in the show, there are days where I think, oh, Isabel, you're being too you right now. You're too much <laughs> yourself right now. You know, where I think, oh, for the love of God, pick yourself up, Verter. <laughs> you know, give me a break, All right? <laughs> but um, I, I honestly, I, I'm not sure. I think my answer to this cannot come from Charlotte's perspective as much as it will have to come from my own perspective. Even I, better. You know, even better. I mean, I feel like. The truth is we don't really know what her relationship with Verter would be like. We know it would be passionate, it would be lustful, it would be poetic, and it would have a lot of elements that obviously don't exist with her and Albert. Mm-hmm. And that is incredibly attractive and incredibly fulfilling emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. I mean, everything about it, I think, would be fulfilling. Now, to what degree would this last? <laughs> I think that that's unknown. Right. You know, would they still be happy five years down the line if that type of heat were not quite as uh, hot, as it, you know, <laughs> as it as it as it, as yeah. it was when they first uh, met each other? However, I, I definitely don't think that Charlotte and Albert would have had any of that in their relationship. I right. think there would have been a very serviceable relationship, very, very yeah, stable, very stable, very. And and again, so. I think in different stages of our <laughs> lives, we want one, and in different stages, we want the other. You know, I think sometimes when you've had the up and down and the crazy, volatile, passionate thing, you kind of go, oh, okay, I'm kind of ready for somebody I can count on. Right. So in some ways, it's, you know, if you want to get really deep into the story of Verter, at least on Charlotte's perspective, it's a real interesting look at sort of just like the psychology of a, of a woman looking at, the relationships in her life <laughs> and it's pretty i think pretty advanced to be able to express so clearly what well not even just a woman but what any any person could face within a relationship You know, we always talk about, okay, I'm always going for the bad guy, you know, the bad boy types, you know, and I need to find somebody stable now, right? But we think, but I always really want that little kind of crazy, passionate stuff with a stable guy, and you think, oh, maybe that's never going to exist because they don't exist in the same universe, you know? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that that is so very clear in this opera, and I'm very happy that this opera is, you know, from top to tails and three hours and done and dusted. I think that's very civilized. (laughs) Um, I love opera, but I cannot sit for much longer that so, not a um, Wagner fan, <laughs> no, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's all, it's all very interesting to me,
0: yeah. So, the show starts and ends with Christmas carols. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first instance, uh, it's a, a joyful, light, airy, very simple carols, and in the second iteration. Not so much. It's as their Terror is dying, and it's Mm -hmm. really quite a sort of slasher flick, like, bloody affair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Has this opera ruined Christmas for you (laughs) forever?
3: (laughs) No, No, no. Definitely not. Definitely not. It's, you know, if anything, you realize that nothing good or bad ever happened at the right time. They all happen when they happen. Life moves on. It keeps on going, with or without you. You can choose to get on that train or not, you know. Shit happens. <laughs> yep. So excuse my language, but good. And like I said, good and bad. I have some wonderful colleagues that I've known since we were in school together, and we all have kids now, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and I was the first one yeah. that had a baby, and then, you know, the next one had one, and, you know, and we all kind of went, yeah, there's really not a good time to have a baby in this career, but there's not a bad time either, really. Right. It is what it is, and I think the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can just keep on going, just keep on moving. James Cuslin,
0: when do you really see and really know that Charlotte is in love with Werther?
2: I think you see it very early on. I think you see it as early as the end of the first act when uh, after the ball to which Werther has escorted Charlotte because Albert was out of town unwisely, as it turns out. <laughs> Verter is sort of testing the waters, so to speak. And if you look at Albert as the kind of stolid, good boy without much passionate imagination and maybe not so good-looking, this nature, nature wants to take its course. Mm-hmm. It's It's what is civilized about us that We'll jam on the brakes and say no, this might not be a very good idea.
1: Not to be cynical, but this also is a nice it's a nice uh, device to allow Charlotte to have some passion yes. and to, to heat up that whole angle of the opera.
2: Well Massenet is a genius in his use of saxophone. To.
1: Not very many people have ever said that, I would like to say. A genius in the use of saxophone, especially in the realm of classical music. But there you go. Good for you, Jim. But,
2: but you know, the first time I heard this opera many, many years ago, I I was struck by the kind of jazzy daring of a classical composer to use that instrument to convey Charlotte's <laughs> anguish of mind. You... You hear it, it's, it's very prominent in, in the third act of the opera.
1: I wonder what it sounded like to audiences at that time, though, because that was before jazz. So the association that, that American audiences have with that, that instrument is completely different. I wonder what the audiences of that time heard it.
2: That, that is true. I don't think I have read anything that describes uh, how people... Responded to that instrument. I mean, the saxophone was invented in 1840, so it had already been around for for two generations by the time Massenet used it. But it is very telling in its employment in this opera.
0: Yeah, let's get inside of Verter's head and maybe into his music a little bit more. James, is there a moment that you think is sort of the quintessential moment for Verter?
2: Well, he has two. There is the moment when he is very frank about his possible suicide and he, he speaks of himself as a child and he said, will the heavenly father be angry if his child comes home from a long visit prematurely? Won't he be so glad to see his son again? Of course, this puts us in mind of the Bible story of the the prodigal son, and we know that when the prodigal returned home, the father was absolutely overjoyed to see him. And we have to bear in mind, although many of us don't know the Bible these days, in the 18th and 19th centuries, certainly people knew at least the New Testament backwards and forwards, all right prodigal son is is Old Testament, but they knew that as well too. The bookend moment, I think, is in the third act, which is an enormous act musically and emotionally and in every other way, because that's when the truth comes out. After Werther is reading, singing a poem of Ossians to Charlotte and declares his love, the poem he reads is, Why Do You Awaken Me? O oh, breath of spring, so you hear in that stupendous aria, which is a true revelation of inner life and longing, the flip side of the anguish that Werther expresses. In the, God, please welcome me back when I come to you, he is laying out what it would be for him if he could live his dream of having Charlotte as his woman.
1: Boy, is that a German romanticism sentiment. The beauty and pain together, I'm in love and it makes me miserable. It's all of that that tears Verter
2: apart. And Massenet, obviously, is a great artist and a very sensitive being was taken by I, I think his publisher to uh, Goethe's rooms. He made a pilgrimage and he 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 took a tour through the part of Germany where where the novella is set, and he absorbed local color. So I think your sense that this is, despite its Frenchness, very German in its essence is quite correct.
1: Right. So it allows us to look at that idea from another musical angle, from the French. Yes.
0: Yeah. And it it doesn't surprise me one bit that Massonet would have gone that extra mile or many extra miles in research for this. He was a hard worker.
2: Yes, he was. He woke
0: up at four in the morning every day to begin working. He kept his writing desk right next to his bed so that he could dive right into it. He was one of 12 children uh, and his upbringing was hard and uh, they lived in poverty. So he was pretty serious about making a good life for himself through his music.
2: And, you know, I'd like to say this about Massenet and women because so many of his great works are about women and he was passionate about femininity but he was faithful to his to his wife although mary garden the great scots american soprano who whose heyday was 1900 into the 1930s she was by all accounts, one of the greatest singing actresses who ever stepped foot on a stage, sang many of the Massenet heroines. And she studied many of these roles with him. And she said it was, she was an old lady. She was well into her 80s. She was interviewed by the BBC. And Massenet came up and she said, oh, Massanet, he was such an old woman, always falling in love with one so Tiresome, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great picture. That's a great picture and a surprising one, too.
0: It is. Actually, why don't we mention the one other woman in this opera, really, uh, Sophie, who is Charlotte's younger sister by a few years. Sophie offers a a lightness.
1: She's relief is what she is, is. The rest of it is so serious and bleak. And she also is... Pointing hopefully at Verterre, trying to lift him out of this terrible trough that he's in, doesn't work. But she gives it a shot.
2: Well, she wants him out of that trough because she wants him for herself. Don't forget.
1: She so does. she's got some self-interest in there too. She
0: has a, a certain twinkle
2: in her eye. Yes, she does.
1: Um, in a way, she's a perfect soubrette uh, in, in character and in the singing voice. The, the young, the role of the young woman may be a little naive, mm-hmm. but I. I also just love the word because it sounds like something you'd pick up at a pastry shop. (laughs) Soubrette, yeah, yeah. Can I have the chocolate soubrette, please, or the vanilla soubrette? And and Sophie is a lovely, a lovely vanilla soubrette. She is. She is a lovely vanilla soubrette. (laughs) So James, having read the lectures that you sent us as I mentioned before and heard you talk about this this uh, opera. I don't think you like Werther. Do you do you
2: like him? I have compassion for him. I'm rather older than he is and I understand where he is. And what I do love about him is his music. But I'm I'm relieved that I I don't know him.
1: Yes, he would be a tough friend to have.
2: I think one, one reason why this opera has such a grip on me is that if you have, in your experience, ever known anyone with whom you've been very close who did take his own life, the story may have ended for them, but for the survivors, it never ends. And one glimpses... Its enactment on stage with such a profound horror, as Goethe said, he didn't believe in suicide. He said nothing is worth more than this day. Quote end quote, and I think he said that because we do not know, as we continue to live, what thought, what revelation will come into individual consciousness and change the entire nature of our experience.
1: Yeah, it's very powerful. A lot of times in opera, we want to rush on stage and say, don't go behind the curtain, don't pick that thing, don't... And we do. We see this happen to Werther, and we just say, wait, you don't know the end of the story.
2: That's right.
1: Ah.
0: It's time for our YouTube picks, where we tell you about performances that we really love to help you get more familiar with their tear. James, what do you have for us today?
2: I have two picks. Uh, The first one is from a recital that Tatiana Traianos participated in at the Metropolitan Opera in 1982, uh, Maestro Levine conducting. And the aria is the short... uh, Let the Tears Flow from the third act in which Charlotte sings about how necessary it is that when one is suffering not to hold it in because if the tears fall inward, the heart, already so brittle and fragile, at the drop of a tear, might shatter beyond repair. And what is wonderful about this performance is, for one thing, Troianos had an extraordinarily individual voice. It had a kind of torrid sensuality to it that one hears very infrequently. You just hear one or two notes and you know who the singer is. And what is particularly charming about her work, at the end of this sadness, she turns to the maestro, very happy with the way the aria has gone, and she gives him a sly wink. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's wonderful. (laughs) Uh, The second is from a Met performance in 1971 with Christel Ludwig as a a true German-born mezzo-soprano as Charlotte, and uh, Franco Corelli, a dramatic tenor, I would say, as Werther. It's the end of the first act to the very end, it's the would-be lovers coming home after the ball, and even though most of it is mezzo voce, I would say, because of the scale of these singers' voices, they had enormous instruments, there is something epic about the emotion that they are communicating. And when, at the end, Corelli, as Verter, sings Un autre sonne pu, another, her husband, well... You know, the stars just fall out of the sky, (laughs) and you know what Werther is feeling because the impact of that sound makes you feel it too.
1: Jeff, what do you have? Well, because the opera has Mm. these really dark elements, and and I think that honestly, because I think of, I, I think I must have chosen this because I fear. Verter's emotional state and <laughs> so I Ooh,
0: Jeff that's a that's I, a deep look into your soul Yeah
1: I think but I think it's a true look And so I grabbed I grabbed our little vanilla soubrette and chose the aria that you mentioned. I chose uh, Du Gay Soleil, which is Sophia trying to cheer up Verter and she's talking about sunshine and flowers. She ripped some flowers out of the neighbor's garden which is just very it's very cute when you're a young woman to do that. It's vandalism, but it's okay. Very cute, she's,
0: unless it's your garden. Yeah, she's, <laughs> very,
1: she's very sweet. And happiness is in the air, and there's a great deal of joy. And this is Lisette Oropesa as Sophie. And you get to hear Jonas Kaufmann for a moment as Veriter. And this is from the Met production, so you get a sample of that view. And she sings it so beautifully, and it's worth it just for that, that note, because she... Mm tapers that last note so beautifully. Um, She's walking off stage, but she also tapers the note so beautifully. So it's great singing and a moment of sunshine, and you also get to see the very darkness of Verter in his costume and his bearing with Jonas Kaufmann in this little moment.
0: That sounds wonderful. You can check out these videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org.
1: And while you're there, leave us a comment and let you know what you thought of the show.
0: And if you're enjoying yourself listening to these podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your audio.
1: Our guest today was writer James Cuslin. James, what a privilege to talk to you about this. Thanks so much for the deep dive into this work. I can't imagine anyone who would be a better guide.
2: You you are very kind, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Maren. I was absolutely delighted to share this time with you and talk about such a wonderful work of art. Mm.
0: Yes, as were we. I'm speaking Mm -hmm. for us both. Yep. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian.
1: And for Mike Shob, who will return eventually, we think, <laughs> I'm Jeff Spurgeon. And we both thank you for listening.